Thank you for listening to the Stonehouse Sermon Series, A Disciple's Songbook. This series focuses on the Psalms of Ascent, songs that God's people would sing on their journey up to Jerusalem. Yesterday was Veterans Day. If you're a veteran, we love you deeply. Thank you for your service. Thank you for uh, giving of yourself like Jesus did uh, for the needs of others. Uh, We deeply appreciate that and just want to give you our heartfelt thanks. Um, And we also uh, understand that, man, there's often a difficulty in finding uh, genuine relationship and community if that's your history. And so uh, hopefully... This can be a place of grace and opportunity where uh, you, you find folks that uh, can look at you as somebody who's uh, labored hard, but that is also possibly just trying to find out what their life is like in this new world and so on and so forth. And so we want just to be a place of grace and, and not just uh, for veterans, but if you're just kind of new here and just checking things out around Stonehouse um, Man, it's our deepest, deepest hope that through the interactions with God's people, you would see more of the victories and the glories and the beauty of Jesus than you would see the failings and the shortcomings uh, and, and, and the failures of us mere mortals. Um, and that's really largely what today is about in Psalm 131 is uh, when we choose to look at ourselves, uh, we end up with a very disappointing life, um, full of anxieties and troubles um, that are heightened because we look to self and trust in self and rely on self. Um, But man, when we see this glorious turn where we begin to see that the center of all things is Jesus, uh, the center of not just my life, but of the whole history of the universe is, is Jesus. It, it drastically changes the way we look at absolutely everything. And it is a, a gateway to healed and restored humanity and relationships and worship of God. Um, and so hopefully all of these psalms have been bringing our hearts toward a right view of God. Um, but I believe today uh, in a really profound way is going to kind of uh, hopefully lift our vision um, to see Jesus and then kind of by helping us see the, the errors that happen when we don't do that, <laughs> when we don't look to Jesus as primary and as uh, most significant. So um, anyways, that was an ill attempt to say, veterans, we love you and thank you. And also I wanted to mention a, a announcement I did at the beginning of service, which is we've got a membership uh, meeting in class this Tuesday night at seven o'clock right here in this space. So all things membership, all things information about the church. We'd love to see you um, and uh, have conversations about all that stuff. So, all right, back to Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 131 is the first of uh, three psalms that kind of center around the life of Jesus. So Psalm 131 is, excuse me, the life of David. Psalm 131 is written by David. Psalm 132 is about the covenant that God made with David. And then Psalm 133 is also written about David. And so actually because of uh, some interruptions last week, we kind of jumped out of this series and now we're jumping back into it. Because of that, we're going to take the last psalm, uh, I think, right? We're going to take the last psalm and push it back to December 30th. 
I believe. And so we're going to finish this series with 131, 132, and 133, um, and then we'll jump into our Advent um, sermon series, um, which is titled The Weary World Rejoices, uh, where we're going to walk through some of the Advent exclamations in the book of Luke. Uh, There were these moments in the story of Jesus coming uh, where people just stopped and started singing (laughs) or prophesying or just there was just these dramatic moments. So we're going to look at four of those over the uh, season of Advent. And so then after that Advent, before January, we'll come back to Psalm 134. We'll wrap up this series and then we'll move forward uh, into another series uh, yet to be determined for uh, for January. So, um, and quick plug, if you're a designer type of person, you like decorating and all that wonderful stuff that I have no idea how to do, um, let me know. Let us know. We want to outfit this space for Advent a little bit. I'm not going to go crazy or anything like that, but we'd love to give an allowance to a handful of people and say, hey, go make it Christmassy, and uh, let's see what you guys can do. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, let me know. Uh, we'd love to let you loose on the space and have some fun. Cool? All right, so as we've been journeying through these psalms, we've been trying to give questions, so you might have got a separate sheet of paper this morning with some questions. Those questions kind of help us continue to flesh out what's going on in these psalms. Um, the the kind of particular direction of all these psalms is that they were, um, they were recited or even sung together by pilgrims that were journeying to Jerusalem, and so kind of the whole idea is that these were... These were um, things that were recited to bring the heart or to bring the vision or to bring the eyes up towards the worship of God. Um, and so as we've been doing this, we've been looking at them as kind of our uh, our journey towards Jerusalem, so to say, just kind of our journey towards God and what that, what that life of discipleship looks like, you know, this windy up and down crazy road that you're on. Uh, what is this life like and what are the things that we need to remind ourselves of? What are the things that we need to remember about who God is, about what he's done, about who we are in light of who he is and all those things? And so little by little, these Psalms have been walking us through uh, reminders about perseverance and hope and work and worship and all these things. And so this week kind of takes a look at the idea of humility. And so I want to read Psalm 131 again. We've been repetitively reading these Psalms again and again, so we'll read it a few more times this morning and ask the Lord to really get these words, not just through our ears, but into our hearts. So this Psalm of David says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we um, come humbly this morning to admit uh, and, and maybe just to kind of be shocked and recognize that we are often um, unsettled, um, either uh, prideful, arrogant people, or often we've uh, pushed ourselves down with negativity. Um, God, either way, whether we puff up or shrink back, we are prone to look at the self far too much. We are prone, because of the brokenness of sin, to see that our ultimate hope is in us. And that is no hope at all. God, we know that our moods and our seasons change with just the blink of an eye, but 
Oh, we know that you, God, are unchanging, that you are steadfast and faithful and true, and that you are here, that you are with us, that your love abides because of Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives, changing us from glory to glory to glory. But Lord, we've, we often don't see or, or feel that way. Um, and no matter where we're on, where we're at in our journey with you, whether we've walked with you just for some months or maybe it's been years or even decades, um, God, we know that we require a regular reset in our lives to reset upon you and to reset upon our ultimate hope. And God, we thank you for, uh, man, this king who looms large in the history of Israel, David. We thank you for his life and that he can teach things like he will teach us here in Psalm 131, not because he was perfect and always righteous and always good, but because he often was brought to the end of himself to see that his only real hope was you. Uh, so lead us to that place this morning, we pray. We are hesitant to go there. <laughs> Our egos uh, combat the idea that we need to be lowered, and so we pray that you would do a miraculous work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. Do that work in me, do that work in us, and may Jesus be glorified in our time today. In his name we pray, amen. So David opens with this statement that if you've been tracking through the Psalms of Ascent, it kind of seems similar, but then he goes somewhere weird with it, right? So we got to inspect what's going on here because some of the language can be misleading if we don't pay attention to what's happening here. And that's kind of the case with poetry, right? Sometimes you can say the exact same three words in a different setting and they mean totally different things. And that's, uh, that's largely what happens in the Psalms. You really have to pay attention to kind of the, the, the poetic flow of things because we can miss it if we just read it as a sentence. We need to read it as more than just a sentence, as a poem and as kind of a, a particular look and, or a particular feel. And so David uses these phrases. He says, my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. And we, we've seen something similar to these. So we're kind of like, what is David saying? When you just jump right in here, it seems like he's not looking up at God. That's what it seems like maybe he's saying here, but that's not actually at all what he's saying, right? In Psalm 121, the psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the hills. So we have a similar saying there, but in Psalm 121, the psalmist is talking about the hills that kind of surrounded him and how there were, uh, there were altars for worship on those hills and that often if you were a, a, an invading army, you would attack from those hills, that hills represented strength, worldly strength. And so in Psalm 121, the psalmist is saying, I don't look at the world for strength. That's what he was saying there, right? That's not exactly what David's saying here, but that's one thing that was said with a similar phrase. And then Psalm 123, it says, to you I lift up my eyes. Now, you probably don't remember Psalm 123 because you were hunkered down getting hit by a hurricane that day, so we didn't actually preach Psalm 123. But Psalm 123 was about... Uh, those who serve God, looking to God as the one who provides everything they need, right? So in Psalm 123, the psalmist is actually looking up to God. And so now here David's saying, I don't lift my, my eyes up. 
What's he saying? Is he saying, I don't look to the world for strength? Is he saying, I don't look to God for help? No, he's not saying either of those things. The word lifted up here is the word gabach in Hebrew, which means exalted. David was saying, I don't lift up or I don't exalt my heart. He says also that I don't lift up my eyes. The idea here is the thought of haughtiness, something that is spoken to again and again in Scripture as something that is opposed to God or that even God is opposed to. And so David here isn't talking about worship. He's not saying, God, I don't lift up my heart to you. It's not what he's saying, right? He's also not talking about looking for help. He's saying, God, I don't look up for help. What he's saying is, my heart isn't proud and my eyes are not haughty. That's what these poetic phrases kind of lead us to see. And the second half of verse 1 really helps us to frame that, right? He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And so David is talking about holding back here from looking at the world as though he is the center of it. He's talking about this need to restrain oneself from unruly ambition, from the idea of pursuing a life, making a life for myself, with my own strength, by my own power, and obtaining for myself all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge so that I can be godlike. He's saying, I refrain from that kind of posture. This is all about resisting the tendency towards selfish ambition, vain conceit, prideful arrogance, unruly ambition. All of these things are if you've been human for a mere few days, utterly captivating when we walk in the ways of the world. We walk naturally. We're just prone to walk in this kind of uh, self-centered, egotistical standpoint. And so this psalm is going to help us to recognize some of that unruly ambition. But then we'll also look at verse 2, which takes us beyond this idea of infantile dependency. And then finally, we'll walk towards what is this glorious freedom of self-forgetfulness. And so we'll first take on this pride or this selfish ambition. There's warnings all over Scripture against pride. Pride is the sin of all sins. It is a birth birthing to so many other sins. We see uh, both Adam in the beginning saying, I want to rather rule my life instead of God, and we see Satan saying a similar thing. I want to, in fact, be lifted up, to be elevated, to be exalted. Both of those antithesis to God, both of those anti-God sentiments were the introduction of brokenness into our world that said, I am God-like or I can be my own God. The rooting of pride in these things is utterly devastating to our lives. And so we see biblical warnings all over against this pride. Proverbs 6 was actually in my reading this week as I'm walking through Scripture and I saw six things that the Lord hates. Like, when God hates something, that shakes you. That's so strong when we come across that in Scripture. And so let's pay very close attention to these six things. Actually, seven, 
that are an abomination to him. So this is Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, number one on the list. It's the same thing David's talking about. The same uh, Hebrew word is being used there. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Those are some pretty nasty things. And the first one is a haughty eyes. The first one is this thing that David's saying, I do not lift my eyes too high. The first warning is to not look on the world as though you're in the center position as God. To not look too highly on yourself as you engage in this world. Another place that warns us about, script, or about haughtiness in Scripture, we read it in our call to worship this morning. Psalm 138.6, it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. That is a, a haunting concept, that God would know the haughty from afar. That in, like in James, there's an actual resistance to the proud in the character and the nature of God. Why? Because God is high. God is highest because by his own makeup, just because he is God, unlike any other being that has ever existed, he's not just a mere super-powered man, right? He's not just a really old, wise man. He is God completely other than anything that has ever, ever, ever existed before. He doesn't have to try to be high. He doesn't have to try to be above all things. He just is above all things. And so therefore, by nature, when we relate with God as lofty in our own mind, we smack against a stone. God cannot relate with those who view themselves so highly. C.S. Lewis says that pride looks down on everything else, and so therefore it can never see God because it's not looking up. It's just the reality of the haughty spirit is to look down on all people, all things, all positions, all philosophies, all religions, everything else to push those down below the self, to elevate the self high. And in that elevation, we find ourselves in absolute contradiction to God. And so therefore, Scripture says very clearly, God, God stiff arms that posture because he's angry, because he hates us. No, because he, he has to. It's his nature to be the only high and lofty thing. And so this pride that rears its ugly head in so many ways, it is, it is the root of all kinds of sin and brokenness, right? We can trace most of our relational discord to the pride of individuals. We can relate most of our emotional anxiety to our personal pride, to the way we view ourselves as great, most of our stress, most of our worry, most of our fears, we break them down and their root is pride because we're so concerned about how people see us. We're so concerned about the security of our financial well-being. We're so concerned about the path of our lives being exactly as we plan it to be. All of these things have a, a, a root of pride underneath them. And pride leads us to a life of competition. This is a really long quote from C.S. Lewis. Dave, do you have that one? Pride is essentially competitive. <coughs> Maybe. Thank you. Pride is essentially competitive, C.S. Lewis says. It is competitive by its very nature. 
While other vices are competitive only, so to, see, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer <laughs> or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else came equally, became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. We gain a position of pride when we think that we have achieved or obtained or gone farther than the next one. And we're always pursuing this competitive nature when we view the world as our playground. We view ourselves as the center of all things. And so, therefore, pride is this deadly, deadly vice that seems to have no end as we continue to have opportunity to pursue being better than something out there. Now, the scary thing about pride and arrogance in our time and place. Pride has always been a temptation. I just talked about Adam in the beginning and Satan early on. Like these, pride has existed. So long as sin has existed, pride is at the root of so many of those sins. And so the idea of pride being a sin is not what is new news to us. It is not a temptation that is unique or rare among all Christian generations. What's unique and rare today is that pride is highly encouraged and that it's actually viewed in our world as a virtue on some level. The pride that's festering in our hearts is often encouraged through the messaging of the world around us. Believe in yourself. Pursue a healthy self-esteem. Don't care what others say about you. What you say about you is the most important thing. These are all encouragements toward what Scripture is discouraging us from on a constant level. This whole self-esteem reality that we live in today, it's actually, if you read some of the leading edge of, of uh, psychological thought right now, even secular psychologists are beginning to discover and realize that the whole self-esteem solution to the world's problems is the wrong solution. Because self-esteem said in the 80s, we do bad things because we think badly about ourselves. So therefore, if we think better about ourselves, we will not do bad things. That's an incorrect assumption. And what we've birthed out of that movement is the most narcissistic generation that the globe has ever seen, right? We invented the word selfie. Like, it's in the dictionary now. Thanks, Generation X and Millennials, right? We did good. Like, this is, we birthed this movement. It was birthed out of that idea that if you're bad, just think better about yourself, and then you'll be good. But we've birthed narcissistic psychopaths. We think only about ourselves. We think that health will come when we think better about ourselves, but health will come when we think better about God. And when we think better about God, we will think rightly about ourselves. 
thinking rightly about ourselves and thinking better about ourselves are two drastically different things, okay? So listen, this isn't, ah, you're stupid and ugly and you're bad, right? This, that is not the message of the gospel, but also the message of the gospel is not you are great and wonderful and there's nobody quite like you and you're amazing. That is also not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is God is glorious and good and faithful and holy and true and you, like Adam and Satan before you, have believed that you are good, that you are the center of righteousness, that you are the existence of all greatness, but you're not. You're actually broken. You're missing the point day in and day out. You fall short of the glorious reality that God created you for because what? Because you're infected with sin through Adam's choice and through your own choice. You're a sinner by both nature and by choice. But, but, God in Jesus Christ has looked on you not with condemnation, but with grace. And he, at the cost of his own life, has pursued you to renew you, to give you a heart that would see God rightly and therefore see yourself in the more perfect light. Not to see yourself as more perfect, but in a more perfect light. And then to recognize, and I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, when I am told by that great God that I matter, not to the world, but to him, changes everything. Even in my darkness, even in my depravity, even in my fallenness, I still matter greatly to him. Man, it changes everything about the ego, about the personal view of the self, so much so that we can join with David and say, God, I haven't lifted up my heart. I'm not here making a bigger deal about myself than is needed. I'm here to view myself rightly, God, not to obsess about those things that I need not obsess about. Not to think too lofty, not to try to grab hold of the plan for my life and make it happen my way, but rather to submit myself willingly to the great hand of God who rules and leads and designs all things. And so we live in this world that tells us that we should pursue a better ego, a stronger ego. And here David contradicts that idea by saying, my eyes are not lifted too high. Now, Eugene Peterson in his chapter on this psalm says, having realized the dangers of pride, the sin of thinking too much of ourselves, we are suddenly in danger of another mistake, and that is thinking too little of ourselves. So 1, 31 verse 2 kind of helps us frame this idea, how then should we look at ourselves? He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, this seems like a bit of a jerky transition, right? Like I just bought a vehicle and uh, like then I went home to Minnesota and I came back and like the first couple days of driving a vehicle, the gears were all jerky. 
and it wouldn't even go past third gear. It's an automatic transmission. It wouldn't go past third gear. So I'm like cruising on the freeway at 85, 65 miles an hour. <laughs> and the, it was like revving at like six, you know, and I'm like, wait, what's going on? We're burning through gas. So uh, brought it in and thankfully uh, it was just a computer chip that was like on fire or something and it <laughs> needed to be put out. Um, I don't know what really happened. Um, but this, this kind of feels like that. Like it's, it's kind of feels like David's jerking into... Like, where are you going here, David? Why did you jump right into this weird conversation about a weaned child here? And what's interesting here is that David's actually not making a comparison uh, between a proud person and a weaned child, okay? It kind of seems like that because we've got verse one, proud person, and verse two, weaned child. But he's actually not, he's kind of pulled himself away from the conversation, a little bit, related, but a little bit away from the conversation of verse one. And he's introduced a new comparison. And that's actually the comparison between a nursing infant and a weaned child. Okay? So we've got to kind of shift gears with David. We'll get our transmission fixed and, and move smoothly into here because David isn't saying that the opposite of a proud man is a weaned child. He's actually stepping in to this other related matter, saying the opposite of an infant, of a nursing infant, the opposite of that is a weaned child. And then in the reality of a weaned child, we find this calm and peaceful um, uh, soul setting. And so this this comparison, David, with the statement of a weaned child, he brings immediately to the mind the idea of a nursing infant. And the difference between a nursing infant and a weaned child is a big difference here for David, right? He takes a physical reality and he backs it out or pulls it out into a spiritual concept for us. Okay, And so his point here is that there is a growing up that God does in our spiritual life, that there's actually movement in our spiritual life that goes from immaturity towards maturity. And that growth can look at times similar to the process of weaning because God is never okay with a toddler screaming and crying uh, on the floor for milk, right? God wants us to move towards a mature existence where we're not the same as we were when we were infants, right? And so if you just think for a minute and back up on your, kind of your spiritual journey. So maybe a month ago, you're kind of an infant in the faith. Or maybe it's a year or two ago. Or maybe it's been some decades since you've been what would be called, kind of characterized as an infant in the faith, a brand new baby Christian, a brand new baby believer. What is it in the early life of a follower of Jesus that is comparable to the life of a nursing infant. And a lot of commentators help me kind of frame this in a really wonderful way to understand that so often the early years of our life with Jesus are filled with us crying and asking for God to meet our immediate felt needs. Often, God actually brings us to faith through the absence of felt needs right? Crisis moments, moments of loss, moments of deep hurt or betrayal, moments where we suddenly feel incredibly weak and we're like, oh my goodness, I had all this hope in myself and now it's gone. And so we actually lift our eyes to God, the bottom of the barrel idea so that we finally lift our eyes to him. Often that's what is experienced at the earlier infant stages of our walk with Jesus. And then ensues kind of the nursing baby atmosphere. This existence of just having an empty feeling and screaming until it's filled, right? 
I don't feel full. Feed me. And this is often the prayer of an early Christian. My needs aren't met. I feel lonely. I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel broken. God, meet my needs. Infant, right? Move toward the idea of a weaned child and the difference between asking and knowing that a mother will take care of your food and screaming like crazy until you get it. There's a difference between those two things because the child has been weaned. At last, the child can sit on the lap of the mother and know, I know where my food's going to come from. I know where my care is provided by, who my care is provided by. I need not lose my mind because she's right here. There is a calm and a settledness to that difference, to that uh, change. Arthur Weiser says it like this, the mature Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself but God. Thank you, Lord, for these wise men. There's a difference in those postures and what we look to God for right? The last couple of years in my life have been marked with sorrows never seen before. And the response today compared to the response when I was a teenager is dramatically different. Why? Because God has done the hard work of weaning me. Mom's in the house, not easy. Like that is a breaking and God does it to us. Because he hates us? No. Because he dearly loves us and he longs for us. He longs for us to see that the world is not only about us. What a glorious change in Christian maturity when we begin to look around and say, oh, people everywhere that are hurting, that need love, that need service, here am I crying and screaming, and I should be there serving and giving, right? But it's, it's a process. So David here isn't saying, buck up, you stupid, immature kids. He's saying there's a difference, and there's a growth in the settledness of soul that God can bring to you. And listen, this is older David, <laughs> This is older David. I don't know how old, but it's not early, early David. It's older David. You've read some of the early David, right? It's more infant-like. I mean, it's glorious because it's honest and it's raw, but this is older David. David, who was anointed king and then sought uh, by the king, tried to be murdered. David, who then came to the throne and was sought by his son and usurped by the military to overtake his... This is a mature David who said, my life's experience tells me that even though all my needs don't get met, my God is my God. He's my loving father 
He's my caring Savior. And so spiritual infancy is marked with cries to God for immediately for immediate help out of worldly troubles. But a weaned child characteristics exist, or in within the characteristics of a weaned child are a calm and quieted soul in the midst of the raging world around us, right? And just as an aside, this isn't David saying we should pursue a monastic life, right, where we just hide out away and just drink water and eat crumbs and read and pray all day. Like, he's saying in the midst of St. Pete, where the war rages on, where your ego is being fed on all sides, where your needs are pressing in around you, leading you to think you need things that you don't really need. In the midst of this crazy world, your soul can be calmed. You can find rest there. Why? Because of God who is faithful and steady. And how do we get there? Really, the question for all of us is, okay, give me the secret to doing this, right? And it never is quick. It never is easy. But David ends with a beautiful um, call to Israel. He says, O Israel, verse 3, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. As we read scripture, we come upon these little phrases a lot, right? The grace of God found in Christ Jesus, hope in the Lord, the glory of God, right? As followers of Jesus, we need to train ourselves to realize these are not just ink users, right? They're not just page fillers. There are deep applications in these statements, and the writers do not use these um, in vain. And so there's a little bit of this that's missed in English, and I'm not very good at Hebrew, but here's what the Hebrew says. Yisrael, Yakal, Yehovah, Ata, Ata, Adamum. In there, David says, hope in God now, now. Hope in God now, now. And you can almost hear David, like the fatherly, kingly David saying, oh, my, my dear Israel, my dear children, hope in God now while you're fighting pride. Hope in God now while you're fighting infantile dependence. Hope in God now, now. Hope in God is applicable in all places, he's saying. When you're aware of how prideful and boastful your soul can be, hope in God. When you're awakened to how possibly immature and childlike, baby-like you are, hope in God. The solution for both of these pitfalls, so to say, is eyes on the Lord to put our hope in him. This is Israel's king calling the people of Israel to look to its greater king because the effective but rarely applied remedy to both this prideful ambition and the infantile immaturity is to take the focus of our lives off of ourselves, right? We're prideful because we're looking at self. We're infants because we're looking at self. The solution is eyes off of self. So then where do we put our eyes if we don't put them on ourselves? How do we lift our eyes? Well, we don't just say, well, stop being proud and start being humble. And by the way, here are six marks of a humble person. Do this, do that, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and you're humble. Right? We don't do that here. I mean, it fits nicer on a screen and in a bulletin and on a tweet, 
but it doesn't work. I'm sorry, I know that's harsh, but God graciously leads us to understand we cannot solve this in our flesh. We have to look to God who alone can do this work. And so we don't just stand up here and stop, say stop being proud and stop being a baby. Just end it and be better, right? We say your soul is sick and it needs the Lord. And if your heart is not changed, it doesn't matter how practiced your behaviors become, it won't change a thing because we are not altered from the outside in, right? We are altered as God changes us on the inside by seeing his truth more clearly. And so we worship the true and humble king. That is the beautiful center line to, these, to help us avoid either of these pitfalls. You're going to have to deal with a lot of dad stories for the next while. Sorry. I hope you like them. Uh, my dad in September uh, went on a trip with mom. Uh, they had been planning it for several months, and uh, we're all so glad they went. Um, but my dad loved national parks. My mom, not as much, but dad really loved national Like, took her on a honeymoon to a national park, and she was like, she was like okay, I like you. Park, yeah, but, uh, you know. Um, but ever since they were married, they've continued to go back, continued just all over the country. My dad just loves to view these national parks. In fact, the last puzzle that he made was a United States map with national parks puzzle thing. So, um, so in September, he got to go back to camp. Uh, wow, I just said cancer because it's right here on the paper. Uh, got to go back to Colorado uh, in the midst of this, you know, long, slow, tiring battle with cancer. And uh, mom and him went to his 28th, 29th, and 30th national parks. The dude saw 30 national parks in his lifetime. And everybody that knows he loves national parks is talking about what he's seeing now and, like, the unmatched beauty of heaven. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yes, better than national parks. But just the, the, the whole beauty of national parks, just he loved to take pictures of them. He wasn't an accomplished photographer or anything, but he just loved to. He loved to go on these trips. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, he took me and my two brothers to the Grand Canyon. And we hiked down the Grand Canyon, camped overnight, hiked back up the Grand Canyon. It was it, literally the trip of my lifetime. Uh, never experienced anything like that. And I was listening to a message this week talking about combating pride and, and dealing with things uh, like the human ego. Uh, and John Piper said this, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. And I was just like, this is great. Like, this, and, and for me, it was just this perfect kind of marriage of this text and my dad, like this reality of how does a heart grow humble? Go look at something that's giant, Right? Like, who's been at a park or even when you're at the golf, or, you know, and you're just like, man, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I'm really big. I achieved some great stuff recently, right? No, you just sit there with your jaw on the ground, eyes big, like, who made this? Who, who put this here? How did it get here? How do those things stay there? How does that hang that way? How is it spread so wide? We just we stand back and we're just in awe right? This, like, this is the whole point of beholding the glorious work of Jesus. Because in the view of such grandeur, you can't help but forget yourself. I mean, maybe you're thinking about how you're going to get down, and that's about it. Like, just, you just forget the self because of the greatness before you. 
And so this is the journey towards combating our pride, you guys. We look at greatness. And that greatness is Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with four different passages. We look at Jesus. Philippians 2, 4 through 8 says, Let each of you look not only to his, interest, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, doing what? Having this mind about you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you want to know what humility is, you look at Jesus. Look at what he did to empty himself, to give himself for us. We stand before Jesus in awe. Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we are enamored by Jesus. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you fall into the temptation of seeing Jesus as just a man, read that. He is no mere man. He's the creator of all things. He holds all things together. He is the very physical representation of the image of God. Ephesians 3, 17 and 19 says that we are filled by Jesus so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And finally, we are enabled to live like Jesus. This was actually in last week's sermon, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So to say, like David said, our heart is not lifted up and our eyes are not raised too high, we have to find something bigger than ourselves. And the only thing is Jesus. And so may you look to Jesus. May you be caught up in who he is in his life and may that transform the depths of your heart so that you would see yourself rightly and worship your God purely and understand what humility is truly about and also be brought to a place where you're strong in him because he fills you and he moves you into maturity that you might go out like him and serve and love and be light in this world. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, David says. Oh, Stonehouse Church, hope in Jesus. Let's read Psalm 131 one more time before we close. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me.
O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. God, we can't do humility without the greatness of Jesus in view. It is not a character trait to be mustered up. It is not some 10 points to remember and live every day. It is an utter transformation of the soul. And God, we have no power to do that to ourselves. And so Lord, would you move in our hearts to make a people like Jesus who are humble, who love and serve others well, who see themselves rightly in light of the grandeur of the greatness of God that is ever before us. And Lord, would you please train our lives, train us in our lives to grow Lord, some of us are experiencing growing pains now because we're leaving infancy and moving into another stage, or maybe we were at a toddler stage and you're moving us further along than that, God. Who knows where we're at, but God, you are the maturer, you are the worker, uh, you are the builder of our lives, and so we ask that by your word and through the things that you lead us into, that you would train us that you would bring about in us a calm and quieted soul. Lord, these things are not possible at all without you, and so we hope in you both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.